So this is the second week that we are spending on this text, First uh, Timothy 3, verses 1 through 7, about the qualifications of an elder. I will say at the outset, uh, and I don't know if you uh, sense this or not, uh, every time I go through this, there's, there's a tension that I uh, feel. Um, it's because, you know, in, in the beginning, the verse 1 says, if a man desires the position of a bishop or elder, he desires a good work. So the Bible says this is a good work. And then the rest of the verses lay upon these really high standards and qualifications and burdens on an elder. And, and I constantly think to myself, how is this a good work? How can a good work have so many qualifications? Not easy to fill qualifications. And vice versa, how can a, a, a position that uh, is so high and so, quote-unquote, burdensome, you know, high standards, how can that be encouraged as a, as a good work? I think the only way to think about this is to think about the flock, right? Elders were appointed to become shepherds of God's own flock, church members. These are the very same members that Christ himself gave his life for. He paid the ultimate sacrifice for each of us. And so when Christ says, you elders are in charge of shepherding God's church, that's a good work because the people that elders lead, they are precious in God's sight. So precious that he gave his own life for them. But it's also because of that, that there are such high qualifications because he gave his own precious life for them. So you better not mess it up, right? You better not mess it up as an elder. So that is why they are high qualifications. Um, I hope the tension here teaches churches to not appoint elders nilly-willy, you know, because there are high expectations. There are high qualifications. But at the same time, churches shouldn't shy away from appointing elders because this is a good work. This is a good work, okay? Um, as I said, this is the second week we're, we're uh, spending on this passage. I'll just briefly review what we talked about last week. There are 16 characteristics, 16 traits listed. We don't have time to go through each of these 16. But what, what I've tried to do is I've tried to categorize and group them into, in, into some basic categories. Last week, we talked about three. This week, we're going to talk about three more. Last week, we talked about these three categories. First, is that the Bible emphasizes a person's character over their ability. A per, who a person is on the inside more than what they can do or what they're good at, what their skills are. 15 out of the 16 traits are about a person's characteristics, a person's inside, who they are. And only one, the ability to teach, is a skill or an ability. Um, so the Bible emphasizes character over ability. That's actually not how most churches do things when they appoint leaders. Most churches just look at ability. Ability to speak, uh, ability to lead people, ability to raise offerings and finances, right? Ability to manage a church, a large organization, uh, more than they do character, okay? But scripture does the opposite. Scripture tells us we have to emphasize character over ability. 
the scripture emphasizes having a good moral reputation. That's what we talked about with words like blameless, the husband of one wife, temperate, sober-minded, of good behavior. This person must, you know, he's not perfect. None of us are perfect. But this person must, when you take everything into consideration, this person must, in general, have a good moral reputation. Okay? Uh, you can't, an elder can't be someone that you mention his name to uh, the, the local person down the street and they're like, oh, wow, this is a seedy person. Okay? An elder must have a good moral reputation. And then uh, last, uh, last week, we, we talked about how uh, an elder must be gracious, not harsh. You know, they must not be violent. They must not be given to wine. They must not be quarrelsome, but they must be gentle. And it's not, you know, a, a, a sort of dichotomy where you're gracious one day and harsh another day, right? You're supposed to be both at the same time. And we talked about how actually being a parent is probably the best example of that. How you are constantly always trying to be loving and gracious and gentle to your child, but at the same time, have standards, not be a pushover. But at the same time, not be harsh, right? And it's not like one day you're, you know, high on standards and really harsh, and the next day you're low on standards and really gracious, okay? You got to be both at the same time. We talked about last week how these are qualifications. The Bible is clear. These are qualifications, not hopes of what somebody might be, which is how I think most churches take this passage. You know, every time a church lays hands on an elder, they will cite this passage. But I wonder how much homework they did beforehand in really seeing if a person was truly qualified versus what I think happens most of the time, a church because of a person's outside qualities or accomplishments, they'll make him an elder. And then they'll hope, they'll hope that he is blameless and hope that he remains the husband of one wife and hope that he's temperate and so on, so, so forth. Okay, that it's not, these are not hopes after we make somebody an elder. These are qualifications before we make somebody an elder. So that's what we talked about last week. This week, we're going to talk about three additional categories. But before we do that, I want to make a correction as to something I spoke about last week. Last week, I said that the word for bishop here, uh, I, I, I used the wrong word. Okay, There are two New Testament words that are translated about the same way for elders. One is the word presbyteros, and the other is the word episkopos. Presbyteros and Episcopos, all right? Um, presbyteros sounds like the word for Presbyterian, and that is because the Presbyterian form of government is uh, ruled by elders, and then uh, church governance is ruled by uh, groups of elders in a local church called a session, and then on top of that, there's an additional accountability, groups of elders in a local presbytery, and then even on top of that, there are there's an overall large group of elders in the General Assembly, all right? But uh, we won't get into church history too much. The two words in the New Testament translated elders are episcopos and presbyteros. They are used interchangeably, 
often in the same passage, talking to the same group of people. For example, Acts 20. We, we, we brought up this in Sunday school when Paul is uh, saying his goodbye to the Ephesian elders. He uses both terms to refer to these elders. He uses presbyteros, and then he uses episkopos. They are, so they are used interchangeably. If we wanted to kind of make distinctions, you could say that the word presbyteros uh, more so is a general term for someone who has uh, age and experience and wisdom in any society or any culture or any organization. All right. So actually, the, the Jewish teachers of the law and elders, the New Testament actually uses that word presbyteros to refer to them. So not Christian elders, obviously. These are people against Christ, but they're still called presbyteros because that's a general term for somebody who is like a village elder. Okay. Actually, in Greek, there are male forms of words and female forms of words. So actually, later on in Timothy, when Paul refers to treat elderly, treat older women like mothers, that's the female form of the word presbyteros. Obviously, he's not saying those women are elders in the sense of the office of elder, but this is just a word that refers to folks who are more esteemed because of their age in society, presbyteros. Episcopos refers more to the function of a presbyteros, meaning they're more of a supervisor type. They're more of an oversight person. They're more of an overseer. Okay, Episcopos is the word that's used here in Timothy. I misspoken, said the other word last time. So I just wanted to make that clear. Having that said, today we're going to look at three more categories of these words. The first category is selfless. An elder must be selfless, not about themselves, but they must be about sacrificing for other people. And here uh, I would put in these words uh, in verse 2, hospitable. You have to be selfless to be hospitable. In verse 3, not greedy for money, obviously, and not covetous. All of these words require somebody who's not selfish, right? Obviously, if, you, if you're selfish, you can't be uh, hospitable. If you're selfish, you're going to be greedy for money. and You're going to be covetous of other people's stuff, things, or other people's spouses. Uh, the word hospitable is actually pretty interesting. The word hospitable means literally to love a foreigner, to love a foreigner. The Greek word for this is philoxenos, philoxenos. We know the word philo means love. Um, it's actually, so the word philosophy is a love for wisdom, Right? Philo means love. Um, particularly, it's, it's, uh, there are three Greek words for love. Okay? Philo is the Greek word for love that's uh, pointing out experiential love. When you have some kind of experience or some kind of experience of affection or love for somebody, it's experiential love. All right? As opposed to agapao or agape, which is a decision-based love. So God's covenant to us is a decision-based love. It's a will, right? That's agapao. We are naturally not lovable because of our sin, but God 
decides, he makes a covenant with us, right? That's agape. Uh, Philo uh, is still very good love, but it's more experiential love, okay? The experience of love. Xenos, we know from the word xenophobia, right? Phobia meaning fear, xeno meaning foreigner. So xenos literally means foreigner, stranger, somebody who's not, uh, you know, like common in your culture or your society. Um, so to be hospitable is the opposite of xenophobia, all right? It is literally to love the foreigner, to love the stranger. Just a quick comment. We're not going to go down the rabbit hole. Uh, this does not mean open borders because what we are doing to migrants and foreigners in this country because of open borders is actually very not hospitable. It's very inhumane. Uh, last week, I work in the public defender's office. Last week, you know that they're housing uh, migrants in that Roosevelt Hotel in New York. Last week, we just got a case where two of them, two of them are charged with theft. Why? Because they're looking for work and some scoundrels go over there and prey on them and say, I promise you work. You come down to Philly and you steal some things for us and we'll pay you some money. So it's not hospital. Now those two people, whoever those two people are, they're going to have criminal records and they're probably going to get deported. Okay. So it's not a hospitable system. Um, having said that, to be hospitable is to be experience-based. You have to experience it. It's not a theology that you learn. You have to experience it. Um, you can't just talk about showing friendship to a stranger or a foreigner or opening your house up to them in theory, okay? You actually have to do it. Get a feel of what it's like to cook, to try to talk, to try to understand somebody else's differences. When they leave to clean up, after them and nobody says thank you, all right, put in all that work to be hospitable. So it's not just a theology, it has to be experience-based. Think about what Jesus said, Matthew 25. This is Jesus talking about the last day when he says, well, there's going to be a group here called sheep and a group there called goats. And he says to the sheep, you know, when I was hungry, you fed me when I was uh, in prison, you uh, when I was naked, you clothed me. When I was in uh, prison, you visited me. In the in the sheep, this is what the Bible says: Matthew twenty five thirty seven to forty. The righteous will answer Jesus, saying, "Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you a drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you in, or naked and clothe you? Or when did you when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you?" And the king will answer and say to them, Assuredly, I say to you, in as much as you did it to the least, in as much as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. Right? And then, of course, we know the rest of that passage where Jesus goes to the other group and says, You didn't care about me. And the other group says, Well, when did we see you naked and hungry and thirsty and in prison? And Jesus says basically the opposite because you didn't do the same to the least of these, my brethren, you didn't do it to me. Okay, so hospitable literally means to love the foreigner or the stranger. It 
requires selflessness. Same thing with not greedy for money, not covetous. When we come to these words, it says more about our heart than what we have or don't have. Okay, because it's not only the rich people who are greedy for money; poor people can be greedy for money, maybe even more so. It's not just the people who have that are covetous. It's often the people who don't have that are covetous. You know, the 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 quote unquote property crime that seems to be making a wave around our country. What is that motivated by? Except covetousness, right? And most of those folks are not well off.、Um, you know, we read today in Exodus 20, as Mark was going over the、uh, confession of sin, what the what God spoke to the Israelites in Exodus about coveting.、It、says, "Don't covet somebody else's wife." It's not just the married people that covet wives; it's the single people who can covet other people's wives too. Okay, so. Being greedy for money, coveting other things, those speak to more heart conditions rather than what you actually have. It's actually a shame that you know these are simple terms. I, I, I don't. We don't need to go into more explanation about what it means to covet and what it means to be greedy for money. But it, this is these are actually words that I think of all the qualifications that we read today in First Timothy three. This coveting for money and coveting other people's things, this is the qualification that the church doesn't pay attention to most. Why? Because you look at all the churches that let back into the office of an elder people who have committed adultery, right? All the scandals in the church where a pastor or an elder commits adultery, and then after a few years, after they say sorry, they let them back in. Become this pastor of this other church, or become this elder of this other church, and they they don't put a fence around this qualification and say, well, no, you can't you can't be an elder anymore. That's actually a huge point of debate in Reformed churches now, right? In Reformed churches, Evangelical churches that should hold God's word to a high standard, it's a debate: Can you commit adultery and then become Later on, an elder, if you're sorry for it. Here's what I would say: I come down on the side of you commit adultery, you're done. You know, go serve other places, go find other jobs, okay? But you're done. Why? Because when you commit adultery, you prove yourself to be covetous. You've proven it. You know, most of the time we take people's word. You know, we interview them, we do an investigation, and we try our best to. Determine whether they're covetous or not, hopefully, right? But but you can't tell for sure, really for sure. But when you commit adultery, you prove beyond a reasonable doubt you are covetous, because you have to covet somebody to commit adultery. Nobody does it by accident. So if you've proven, you don't qualify. So logically, I would need that person to now prove the opposite for them to qualify again. Right, so it's more than just saying sorry for the act. You now have to go prove that you're no longer coveting things. So how do you go prove that? How do you prove you no longer covet? You can't. You can't. So once you do that, 
you're done. But all of this requires selflessness. When you covet, you're thinking about yourself. Selflessness is vital to becoming an elder. Why? Because when you become an elder, you get power. And with power, the worst of people come out. More than money. You give people money, some bad stuff comes out. But you give somebody power, that's worse. You give somebody power, their true selves come out. Uh, This was either Abraham Lincoln either said it or somebody said it about Abraham Lincoln, who said, if you really want to know who a person is on the inside, on the bottom, give them power. Not money, not fame, not influence, but power. Give them power, and then you truly figure out who a person is. But you don't want to do that with an elder because by then it's too late. So you want to figure this out, whether a person is selfless, before he becomes an elder. Uh, one of, part of our New Testament reading was Matthew 23, verses 11 to 12, where Jesus said, But he who is greatest among you shall be your servant. Jesus said, if you want power, if you want to make somebody great among you, he must be the lowest. He must have selflessness. He must be selfless. He must be your servant. And whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Selflessness. The next category. The elder must be first faithful with a little bit. Faithful with a little before you're faithful with a lot. Okay, there we see phrases like verses 4 and 5. He has to be one who rules his own household well, having children in submission with all reverence. Verse 6, he can't be a novice, meaning he can't be a new convert without any experience. Verse 7, he must have a good testimony among those who are outside, meaning he must be faithful with his testimony to those on the outside first before he's entrusted with responsibility inside the church. And the logic is all the same. If you can't be a good shepherd or a leader with a little, how can you be entrusted with a lot? And not even just a lot in terms of numbers, a lot in terms of preciousness to God, right? Because the flock, the church members are the ones that Christ gave his own life for. That's precious. That's a lot in terms of what he gave up. So you must be faithful with a little bit before you're faithful with a lot. Let me just take one of these and explain a little bit more. Uh, What does it mean to rule your own house well? Having children in submission with all reverence. Um, It doesn't mean that you are just a harsh ruler of an iron fist at home. (laughs) You know, kind of forcing your kid to be submissive. All right? Because if you go to a related passage, Titus. So after Timothy... Paul writes another letter to Titus where he writes a lot of the same things. In Titus chapter 1, verses 5 to 6, the Bible describes a very similar thing. Titus 1, verse 5, For this reason I left you in Crete, that you should set in order the things that are lacking, and appoint elders in every city as I commanded you. 
If a man is blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children, not accused of dissipation or insubordination. So there, Paul talks about three things that make for a good ruler of a household or, or a good manager of a household or a good husband of a household. One, his children must have faith. They must be faithful children. Two, the children must not have dissipation, meaning uh, desires and wants that, that go out of control. You know, addictions, uh, out of control, rowdiness, uh, you know, bad behavior, things like that. But then the children must not be insubordinate. The children must be respectful and subordinate. I was thinking about this. You know, as parents, we're always trying to figure out the balance between to you know being overly harsh versus to being overly permissible, right? Now think about this. If you're a parent that's overly permissible and you're never harsh, you never discipline your child. Sure, they might love you and and, and be really friendly with you, but they're going to have dissipation. You know, they're not going to have control. You know, they're going to be spoiled. There, there's going to be all over the place with their desires and their and their wants. But if you go on the other extreme and you're just ruling your house with an iron fist and you're just really harsh, sure, your kids might be really in line. But guess what? One day they will rebel against you. You know, kids might rebel anyway, right? But if you rule your kid with an iron fist, yes, they will rebel against you. They will most definitely rebel against you. They're not going to be subordinate. They're probably not going to have faith. And so when Paul says, having faithful children not accused of dissipation or insubordination, that's what it means to rule a house well. You has got to find that balance, right, of grace and discipline at the same time, love and discipline at the same time. Why? Well, you take that and you apply it to the church, right? If you're an elder and we're always permissive, you're going to have church members that are full of dissipation, full of uh, disobedience to God's word. But if you rule your church with an iron fist, members are going to leave, right? They're not going to subordinate themselves to, to your care. Right? So you have to be faithful with a little. Let me just end with this, the last category. And this is the only place where the Bible talks about a skill, ability, when it says ability to teach. An elder must be able to teach. When we think about teaching, the biblical idea of teaching is very different from our idea of teaching today. Our idea of teaching today basically means somebody gets up on a podium and just passes information to everybody. Okay, information trans trans transmission. That's our idea of uh, teaching. That's not the biblical idea for two reasons. One, when the Bible, whenever the Bible talks about teaching, it always talks about mentoring or discipling somebody. Not just giving them information, but passing them wisdom sharing with them your life so that they can see that the information and 
the way you live matches together and that helps them gain wisdom. Basically what Jesus did with the with this is disciples. He didn't just go to a classroom, get up on a lectern and say, "Okay, you know, take this for three credits. You just have to come every Tuesday and Thursday and take a class and take a final exam and you're done." Right? Jesus called his disciples. They lived with him. They traveled with him. They he he shared his life with them. He taught them when they made mistakes. He taught them wisdom. Okay? So so the idea of teaching in the first century was more of discipleship of mentoring somebody also when you take the biblical idea of teaching uh, it's very different from human teaching in this other sense uh, when i was in graduate school or when i was about to go into graduate school i went to a, a introductory seminar and basically they described what graduate school was like they said imagine all of human knowledge the sum of all human knowledge however long we've been here on on the planet earth as a big circle okay when you're an undergrad student when you are an undergrad student you are just trying to get a sense of what is inside the circle what is 2 plus 2 you know what is how do you find derivatives you know you know physics and science and you know medicine all that when you're an undergrad you're just trying to get a sense of what is inside the circle when you are a masters student you're trying to find what is on the outer edge of the circle. What is the most cutting edge knowledge in physics and math and science and whatever. But when you're a PhD student, your job is to not just go on the edge of the circle. Your job is to go outside the circle, discover new things, right? Discover that atoms are not just atoms. They're, you know, there's quantum physics and <laughs> all kinds of weird things involved, right? When, 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 you, when you're a PhD student, you're supposed to go outside the circle and outside the circle and outside the circle. You're supposed to try to expand that circle. That's what we think of when we think of human knowledge and teaching. Not so the Bible. The Bible's idea of teaching is, here is the circle. This is the good deposit that was given to you. Once we're all delivered, right? God's word, you know, everything that we need to know about salvation and spiritual life that was once for all delivered to us now guard it guard it don't go outside of it don't add to it don't subtract it from it but guard it okay we're not to have a phd approach to god's word we're not to find new things in god's word right because it was once for all delivered to us so if an elder is able to teach it actually means he's able to just guard what's in the Bible and just guard it well. He's not supposed to come up with new and fancy ways of reinterpreting scripture. Now, unfortunately, I think what happens in seminaries, what happens in maybe churches, maybe influential churches is you hear sermons, you hear, you read articles where basically they start off with, I'm going to give you a new way to look at scripture. I'm going to give you a new way to understand this, a new way to understand that, and a new way to understand X, Y, Z. That's not the point. That's not biblical teaching, right? When you're supposed to be guarding what was given to you and just being faithful with it. All of this to say, again, like I said at the beginning, these are qualifications of an elder. They're not hopes. 
They're not hopes that you hope that somebody fulfills after you make them an elder, you know, probably too quickly. They are qualifications that you, we talked about this last year, you kind of have to put them through the ringer a little bit and investigate them, get to know them, really get to know who they are. Qualifications before you make somebody an elder. Much easier said than done. May God give us the grace, you know, our our little church. May God give us the grace um, to hold to his teaching, to hold to these qualifications. Because, again, goes back to the flock. This is an important, this is a good work, but a very important work. Because God is entrusting his flock into these elders' care, right? And so, yes, it, it takes time. We better spend the time to get these qualifications right. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we, uh, we thank you for, yes, these uh, sobering qualifications. Yes, they are, um, they are high up there, uh, and they are difficult to meet. But there is a good reason uh, for this. There's a good reason for this good work. And that is because the, 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 the flock that you sacrificed yourself for, they are so precious in your sight. Lord, help us as a church to, to, to maintain these standards, to not flinch from them, and, and to be courageous in standing up for them. Give us grace, O oh Lord, uh, that we may find men Uh, who may meet these qualifications. Give us grace, Lord, love and grace and patience that we may train men to meet these standards and qualifications. Again, Lord, all for the glory of you and all for the sake of your church. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.